I'm going to ask you to turn with me in the Word of God this morning. We're going to look at Acts 17, and then we're going to turn over to 1 Thessalonians 1. So we have two places. You can put a pen or your finger or something in one place and keep it open to the other. And we're going to go ahead and just read these two portions of Scripture. So I'm going to ask you to stand now out of respect for the holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant word of the living God. Well, here's Acts 17, beginning at verse 1. And when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them. And for three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and rising again from the dead, saying, This Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. Some of them were persuaded, joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks, a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar, attacking the house of Jason. They were seeking to bring them out to the people, and when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, There's another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. And the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Oh, now turn with me over to 1 Thessalonians 1 now. 1 Thessalonians 1, and our passage will be verses 1 through 4. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you. You may be seated. And as you take your seat, I hope your Bible is open and you're following along with me. And I want you to glance down with me this morning at verse 1 to take note of something that is quite peculiar in our text. may not feel too peculiar at first glance, but it is quite peculiar in a sense in terms of Paul's greetings to the churches. Because you'll see here... No sooner does he introduce himself and his co-workers, co-laborers in ministry, he addresses the church of Thessalonica in God. And what's so important for our purposes this morning is to appreciate this description of the church of Thessalonica as being in God. 
as you're thinking about that and processing it, just listen to some of these other introductions in the New Testament, particularly the most common one you will hear and you will be familiar with is the church being addressed as saints. Or it could be in all kinds of places, uh, Ephesus and Colossae or Philippi. But it's a very common introduction. We have greeting congregations to the saints. The next most common introduction or greeting of the churches would be something like to the church of or to the churches of. And then would follow Corinth and Galatia and so on. We have another peculiar and strange and outlier greeting in the book of Romans where the apostle addresses a congregation he's never met in a place he's never been as beloved of God in Rome. But what's so important for our purposes here this morning is to take note of that great prepositional qualifier to the church in God. That first word, uh, church, is ecclesia. Ecclesia, and it basically means a gathering. And, And all by itself, without qualification, it could refer to a number of different kinds of gatherings. Particularly, it could be civil or it could be religious. But by immediately appending the prepositional qualifier in God to it, what the apostle does is make it very clear the nature of the gathering he is addressing. It is religious. It is religious. It is, a, it is an ecclesia that is devoted to God. But there's something else about it that really makes this begin to to stand out in our thinking and in sharp relief because it doesn't just say in God, but then he qualifies it with the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he says, in God, and this is whom I am speaking of, God the Father, and now you have the conjunction, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And by doing that, he is placing the Father and the Son in an equality of relationship. He's saying here we have two persons of the Trinity, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That conjunction then speaks of an equality of being, an essential unity of being, the divinity of these members of the Trinity, the Father and the Lord Jesus. But he doesn't just stop with Lord. He adds to it two additional titles, Jesus and Christ. You see here, and by referencing Jesus, he is speaking to the humanity of the Savior. He is speaking of the fact that this is the one who has come down from heaven to take upon himself a true human nature who bears our flesh in order that he might be a fit redeemer for us. And his name is Jesus. But then Paul adds one last qualifier to sort of cinch it up or tie together the details for the significant application to the church, which is this, that that Jesus, whom they look to as Savior, is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed. He is the hope of promise. 
So here the apostle, in the very uh, form of address to this congregation of brand new baby believing Christians, addresses them with tremendous uniqueness in order to say something about them. They are the church, the ecclesia in Thessalonica, who are in God, that is the Father and the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the great object of hope and the Redeemer of humanity. And the reason he does that is to proclaim from the outset of this letter to this congregation that they are a true church. That they are a true church. John Calvin says with respect to this unique description, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ says, they are indeed a true and lawful church. And it makes perfect sense the Apostle would identify them in this way given the experience of the formation of that congregation which we just read about. That the apostle went and he reasoned and he explained in the synagogue from the scripture to the Jews about Jesus as the Christ. And what did they do? They gave him the bums rush out of town. And got the magistrate to secure a pledge to make sure that he didn't come back. You see, in the city of Thessalonica, in the time that Paul writes it, there are two gatherings of religious folk who both have a shingle on the outside of the door where they meet. They say, they worship the true God. And the apostle by this designation comes alongside this brand new baby congregation with all of its uncertainties and doubts and difficulties and afflictions that's already endured for Christ. He begins by addressing them saying to the ecclesia in God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, to a true church. When we read about the Thessalonians this morning, people of God, we are reading about a true church. A church where God presides. A church where Jesus Christ reigns. A church which is being discipled and edified and sanctified and built up under the ministry of the means of grace. You see, that's what this book is going to talk about. A true church. And one of the things that we're going to discern from our overview of this, what makes it a true church, is that it has been raised up and founded upon God and His truth. And second of all, that true church which looks to Jesus Christ and to no one else for its salvation is a church which is being shepherded and ruled and governed by Christ through His Word. And that's what we're going to see as we take inventory of how the Apostle addresses the ongoing needs of this congregation. So this morning, as we take up this introduction to the book of, of the Thessalonians, I want us to be thinking before we even hear some of the stuff that we're all too familiar with when we think about an introduction to a book. You could even tell me what you're supposed to do in this sermon. You're supposed to answer who, and you're supposed to answer what, and you're supposed to answer how, you're supposed to answer when, you're supposed to answer why. 
But as you think about all of those significant and important questions of introduction that we're going to consider this morning, I want you to think about them all through the lens of this focus provided by the Apostle. He is helping us organize our thinking and preparing us to discern what it is we're to take away from this book. As he addresses them as an ecclesia in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, he is saying, this is a true church. And here's what you can learn from it, people of God. Because what that true church needed 2,000 years ago is what we need today. Well, we have a lot to take up this morning as we think through this overview, but I want to break it into three parts, and we'll have to go somewhat faster these parts. But, but believe me, we want to, to gain as, as large of, of an of an introduction as we can before we start drilling down deep as we work through uh, this book text by text. And there's three things we want to consider. Uh, The missionary founding, its roots and grace, and its ongoing needs. So let's think about its missionary founding. And as we work into this, now we're going to take up those typical uh, introductory issues such as who, who wrote it? One of the fascinating things I I think that you'll see here in the very first verse is the fact that the Apostle seems to identify three authors, as he says, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. Who wrote it? Well, Paul wrote it, but he includes his ministry team with him, Silvanus and Timothy. So we should think about them for just a moment. You'll remember that we met Silvanus back in Acts 15. And one of the things that we said distinguished Silvanus in that list of names is that he was called a leading man. Now, the term is really a reference to his audience because that term leader is a technical term for a church officer or a pastor. In other words, what we learn about Silvanus when he's first introduced to us is he is a faithful pastor in the Jerusalem church. And then if you read a few more verses, you come to verse 32 and you hear the testimony of his enormous and immense spiritual gifting. In fact, he was so overflowing with spiritual grace and gifts, he was designated as one of the two people who was to go down to the congregation of Antioch and preach to it in order to help heal its wounds over this vicious division that occurred in the church over the gospel. Perhaps most significant for us this morning when we read this term Silvanus at the outset of this letter to the Thessalonians is that he was the man who was handpicked by the Apostle Paul to be his missionary co-labor on the second missionary journey. You'll remember that very unedifying fight between Paul and Barnabas which led to them separating ways and never serving together again. In an absence of having a gifted ministry partner such as Barnabas, the apostle found that God in his providence had supplied unto him Silvanus. And so here you have a man who is tremendously gifted by the Lord and very suited to the ministry of the word. He is a, a leading man. He is spiritually gifted. He's a hand-picked servant. He's a godly man. Then we read of Timothy. Timothy. His very name is significant, honoring God. 
And we met him uh, before, back in Acts chapter 16, as, as Paul began to initiate that second missionary journey. He came to Lystra and Derby to, to go back and visit the churches and drop off the decrees of Jerusalem and then launch out from there on this great second journey. And we're told that the people of God pushed forward this man named Timothy. He's identified as a disciple, which means he's a believer, which means he must have been converted into the apostles' ministry on that first missionary journey. He's well spoken of by all of the people in the churches there. He's also somebody who's well suited for this journey because he's half Greek and half Jew. He can, he can be kind of like a spiritual Swiss army knife. His father was Greek. His mother was a Jew. He's steeped in the Bible. And yet he knows Greek. He's culturally Greek. And so this was the apostles' missionary team. And they stood by him and held fast with the apostle as he went out on mission. And so it's altogether reasonable that the apostle here, as he addresses the church of Thessalonica, will address them with the names of these two ministers whom they had gotten acquainted with and had been blessed by. Godly men, gifted men, seasoned men, able preachers, solid in the reputation. But make no mistake about it, Paul is the author of this book. You might wonder this morning, well, how are we going to drag that rabbit out of this hat? Because he says, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy... Well, the reality is uh, we can testify that Paul is the author because there's numerous first-person personal pronoun references in this book which are clear that it's the Apostle Paul speaking as he repeatedly says, I. Last time I checked, three people can't say that of themselves at the same time. So what do you have here is the Apostle is addressing this congregation. And I would have you know something else that's peculiar in an introduction that's full of peculiarities. He doesn't call himself the Apostle, does he? He does not say what he normally would say. Paul, an Apostle of Jesus Christ. He didn't even call himself a servant. He simply calls himself Paul. And that's all the more remarkable when you consider that one of the concerns that has to be addressed here in this congregation is that people who would seek to undermine Christ and His gospel and His truth in that church were undermining Paul. But instead of throwing his credentials around, holding up his resume for everyone to see, he very self-effacingly simply says... Paul. Oh, and by the way, Sylvanus and Timothy with me. That's remarkable. But the very fact that he will address them that way means he had zero concern about whether they'll accept him. They know that the words have a ring of authenticity about them. And that's why this book of Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, is one of the most well-attested New Testament letters. From early on in the second century of the history of the church, everybody knew that Paul had written this letter. It was never in dispute. The church had always rightly believed that this was from Paul and rightly believed that it was inspired of the Holy Spirit. That's for your confirmation this morning. What you're reading is the work of the Apostle 
under the Spirit of God for the church. When was it written? Probably the easiest way to get at when is written is if your Bible is open, I hope it is, is to look over at chapter 3, verse 1. Now there's a lot more detail we could add into this, but I don't think it's entirely necessary. I simply have you note this reference to a place called Athens. When we could uh, endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens. So here you have the magisterial we. It seems as if the apostle is saying we as in I. Thought it best, we could no longer take it while we're at Athens to do something, which is to send Timothy. Now, when did all this occur? Well, if you feel like jogging your memory just a little bit this morning and thinking back to the book of Acts, you'll remember that from Thessalonica, Paul went to Berea. And after being kicked out of Berea, he went where? He went to Athens. And that's where he preached that famous sermon uh, to the unknown God. And then from there, he went to Corinth. Now, here's a detail that... um, Uh, is not contained here uh, in the book of Acts, which is this, that we're told that Paul left Timothy and Silvanus behind in Berea, and he went to Athens alone. And there's no reference at all in the book of Acts to Timothy ever meeting with him in Athens. But we must have, uh, it must have happened that way because the apostle tells you. You see, when he was accompanied to Athens by the people from Berea, he said, make sure that uh, Timothy and Silvanus come to me as fast as they can. And so by the fact that Paul references this meeting in Athens, it's very clear to us they made it there. And when they were there, the apostle determined to send him back. The next time we read about them all being together is in Acts 18.5. We were told explicitly by Luke that Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia. That would be Thessalonica. And they joined him while he was in Corinth. <laughs> A lot of details here. Simple point is this. It's got to be in the summer of 50. Now, without boring you with all kinds of cross-referencing and appeals to external facts outside of the New Testament writings, we have good grounds of being able to date the apostles' ministry there because of an inscription at the Oracle of Delphi about a proconsul named Gallio, who you'll remember Paul appealed, uh, appeared before in Acts 18. Which means then that Paul had to have written this letter at this time. His ministry is dated by reference to when that man took office. Why do I say all that? I I say it not for the purpose of Bible trivia. I say it, first of all, to say this book is written 30 years after Christ's death. That makes it the, depending on how you date a couple other books, the third earliest book written in the New Testament. Here we're reaching back into the heart of the the beginning of the apostolic days of ministry. And this is the earliest written correspondence we have that gives us insight into the history of the church and of its needs. Early work. And a work full of profound truths. But who did he write it to? And the answer is, he wrote it to the place and to the people of Thessalonica and just a couple of things about them. Uh, The city was founded in 315 B.C. by a man named Cassander whose wife was named Thessalonica. 
who just so happened to be the sister of Alexander the Great. A small name from antiquity. For centuries then, this had been a very significant city, a vast city located on a port and on a major highway. And so it was rich and it was populous. It was full of culture. So likely the reason why the apostle is guided here by the Lord is because there's all kinds of people here who need to know Christ. There's Greeks and there's pagans and there's Jews. And this is a perfect mission field. Located in one of those strategic locations in the area. But what we want to think about for a moment is how did this church come to be? Remember, we made much of noting that this phrase, in God, indicates that it's a true church. And so we'll think back here for a moment about what we just read in the book of Acts about the founding of this congregation. And you remember that the story goes, as we just read it, that uh, as was his practice, the Apostle Paul was traveling through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and he came to Thessalonica, and there was a synagogue. And so according to his custom, he went in for three Sabbaths, and he reasoned to them from the Scriptures. But notice here the gospel foundation of this church. The apostle found a synagogue as was his normal practice and being a rabbi and having the uh, regalia or insignia of a rabbi meant that he had an easy access to uh, any synagogue he went into in order to teach the word. And so that's what he did. He pulled out the Old Testament, which was all the scriptures that were available then, and he opened it up and noticed here the word of God says he explained it And he gave evidence that Jesus was the Christ. And the result of the work was enormous. Very successful. As Luke tells us, some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. Think about that. We're told the effect of the ministry of the Word, they were persuaded. That means they were convinced by means of of argument and evidence and proof. They were persuaded that Jesus was the Christ. But it wasn't a mere human affair or a mere mental affair. Because if you look down in your text, you'll notice here that we're told that they joined Paul. And Silas. But the reality is that word doesn't sound like a person deciding in cold blood to go join in membership or some association or even a church. Because the verb here is passive tense, it means they were joined. It speaks of the sovereignty of God in His grace. Through the ministry of His Word, as the Apostle expounded the Scriptures and by the operation of the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about that next week as we look to this powerful, enormously consequential verse 5 in 1 Thessalonians 1. They were joined. They were converted to God by grace. By this means, the Lord raised up a church. What is the description of the people here? It's a... Significant to us. We're told that there were Jews and God fears and 
important women and so forth. But when you read it, you get the sense of it being very Jewish. And some have said, but what do we do with verse 9? Is your Bible open to 1 Thessalonians? Look for yourself. Perhaps you'll see the apparent difficulty as here the Apostle says, For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to start the living in the true God. And some have long pointed out the discrepancy here between the description of Luke in Acts 17 verse 4 about who was a part of this church, God-fearing Greeks, a number of leading women, and this, what the Apostle Paul himself says about the congregation, that a vast horde of them were what? Former idolaters. Which wouldn't make any sense if they were Jews. That wouldn't be how you would describe former Jews. So it's led to a little scuttlebutt. I can spare you the ins and outs of the baseball of Bible criticism, but there's been a lot of people who said, well, Jesus shows you here that Luke and Paul didn't know each other. And they have two different accounts of the history of the church. The answer is that's quite false. Because the reality is there's a very sensible way to read the text in Acts 17 to see that there was a longer ministry there than just three Sabbaths. We're told particularly what he did with respect to reasoning and teaching in the Sabbath, in the synagogue on the Sabbath. But the reality is, as you look over 1 Thessalonians, one of the things you see is the apostle must have been there far longer than three weeks. One of the reasons why you can say that is because if you were to read over the details of chapter 2, as it defends his own ministry there, he talks about how he spent night and day laboring with his own hands to provide for his own needs. Something which doesn't make any sense if he was there for just three weeks. If you're to go on and to read into chapter 5, you'll notice that this congregation has pastors and elders already, and that's why he's telling the members of the church to make sure they reverence them. Something we can't even imagine could have occurred in the space of just three weeks, that they would have elders set up, instituted, ordained, and installed. As good Presbyterians, we know we have to announce it two Lord's Days in advance. As you look over the doctrinal content of this book and so many things that the Apostle Paul says, it's unthinkable they could have come to this level of mature doctrinal awareness and understanding in three weeks. If you go outside of this book, we have reports from uh, the Apostle Paul saying that time and again he was supplied financially by other churches. Which, knowing the rate of travel during that day seems entirely unlikely could have occurred. So good, sound, reasonable, conservative scholars look at all of this and say, there is a very sensible way to reconstruct the history of Paul's ministry here and embrace the idea that he probably was there for a good six months at least. And he ministered there. And that he was there to teach this congregation and to build it up in the faith and in soundness of doctrine and life. 
I say all of this because I want us to get the picture here, the fuller picture of how it emerges from the total Word of God about the formation of this church and who these people are. Predominantly, this is a congregation full of former pagans and Gentiles. And God in His grace raised them up off the ash heap of their depravity and idolatry and false religion and brought them together in Christ by sovereign grace and made a church out of them. So they owe their existence to Christ and to the gospel and to His his truth. Part of the difficulty of this congregation is what happened. It was jarring. You can see this for yourself. For this, I I want you to go back over to to Acts 17 so you can see for yourself uh, how this uh, event of Paul's separation from the congregation uh, led to a lot of spiritual difficulty in the life of this church. I I take it, people of God, just in case you're uh, wondering, you have the testimony of Paul's synagogue ministry there in verse 4. And now you hop to verse 5 and you read about Jews becoming jealous. I I take it to mean there's probably a a reasonable gap of time between these verses until the church grew up enough that finally these Jews couldn't take it anymore. And here they go after Paul. Notice it says, The Jews becoming jealous and taking along some of the wicked men from the marketplace formed a mob. And by the way, if you're reading the King James Version of the Bible this morning, it has one of the most poetic phrases in all of the King James. It says, Certain, uh, certain men of the baser sort to, to draw out. These are the dregs. And these people form a mob and they set the city in uproar and they attack the house of Jason. And then they dragged him out before the authorities. And then as you keep reading here, you'll notice that they brought charges against them. These are the ones, verse 6, who are upsetting the world. They're calling them revolutionaries. These are the ones who are acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar by preaching that Jesus is the Christ. Whether you come down on three uh, weeks of ministry there or six months... It matters very little when you begin to appreciate the deep significance of this event. These people's lives have been turned upside down by the gospel. Things have happened in their life they couldn't even envision or conceived of just moments before, historically speaking, in their life. And then all of a sudden, this man who God had used to bring them into the kingdom of God is charged before the magistrate and rushed out of town. Labeled as a revolutionary, a political agitator, and one who was dangerous to the peace of society. Verse 10 tells us they were sent away by night. Bible's open now, and I know this is a lot of turning through pages, but come with me now to 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 1. Because now, with this backdrop, with the information I've been giving you, you should be positioned to appreciate this yearning desire to reconnect, which is part of what this book is about. Look with me at verse 1. I already mentioned there was a rendezvous of this ministry team in Athens. And notice here the language. It's very emotive. 
we thought it best to be left behind because we couldn't endure it any longer. This is maybe eight months after they've been kicked out of town. Paul has heard nothing about what's going on in Thessalonica. For much of it, we can assume he's been all by himself in Athens. And and here he says, we couldn't endure it anymore. And the word means a difficulty, annoyance, to be internally agitated, to be overwhelmed with emotion. We couldn't take it anymore, he says. And so what does he do? He says, we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. I want you to notice the concern the Apostle Paul has. He's concerned that the church will wither away and fall away from Christ. The word for afflictions there is a very powerful term, which means tremendous distress, painful distress, oppression, tribulation, sorrows. But but notice what he says about this. His concern, as he says, that no one would be disturbed. It doesn't quite do the job for us in English because what this really means is to give up your belief. You say, well, they're Christians. How could this be? Well, you remember what Jesus said in the tale of the sower? That some people for a time showed joy in Christ. But because of tribulations and afflictions suffered on account of Christ, they fall away. And now you can see then, people of God, the heart that Paul had for these saints who he knew had given up so much to identify with Christ. He didn't want them to fall away, so they sent Timothy to do what? To strengthen them and to encourage them. See, this is the point at which we start thinking about how this all connects to us. True congregation. Genuine believers, saved by grace, converted through the ministry of the Word, regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit, illuminated in heart and mind, embracing the Gospel. But you see, because of the hardships on account of serving Christ, people are wavering, they're hurting. They need encouragement. They need instruction. It was a true church. But they still had real spiritual needs. So the rest that we're going to talk about now as we move into our second point, we saw the missionary founding of the church, and now we come to see that it's rooted in grace. And this is one of the things that you love. If you've ever read this book, and by the way, this, this book's been a, a special treasure of mine going back to the beginning of my days in ministry. The very first Bible study I ever led my freshman year in seminary was on the book of 1 Thessalonians. And I'll never forget studying through these clauses and phrases and just feeling a sense of, of the, the joy that emerges from these verses here because of the wonderful testimony of God's grace at work in the life of these people. Because remember now, we've just said that Timothy was sent back 
to Thessalonica to, to see what was going on, to strengthen, to encourage. And what follows here and what Paul speaks of in this prayer report is what Paul now knows because Timothy has told him about the congregation. And one of the things that he accents here as we think about this idea of being rooted in grace is the evidence of it. Notice what he says. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. Notice the shepherd's heart, the persistent prayers, the unfailing concern to uphold them before the throne of grace. But one of the things that you get from that note of thanksgiving in this report about the prayers is what's going on in their spiritual life. We can say that we know about their spiritual life based upon what Paul says he gives thanks for in his prayers. And notice we have clause upon clause here which unfolds it. Making mention of you of our prayers constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfast hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. All those phrases hold together grammatically. We don't need to nerd out here, explain why I know that. All three hold together grammatically. All three are designed to be a description of their spiritual life. And notice here what he says about it. It's robust. Your work of faith. The best way to translate that is to say, works produced by faith. Works produced by faith. We're going to be able to do the same thing with the other prepositional clauses here. Labor of love. Love producing labors. Steadfastness of hope is that hope is producing steadfastness. But, but don't get ahead of ourselves. Notice the richness of the description here. What characterizes them is what? Their faith animates their life. Their faith animates their life. And the evidence of faith animating their life is their works. The way they're living for Christ. The way they seek to come under His law and, and to embrace its authority. To take correction from it. The other evidence of spiritual grace is labor of love. Love is producing labor. Here's how Calvin translates it. So intense was their love for God, they ministered to the point of being exhausted and weary. These are babies in Christ. When, when you read about the tremendous transformation of life that is exemplified in the description here. You'd think these people had been walking with the Lord for 25 years. They've barely known Christ for a year. You have the authentications of true and genuine experience of grace. How about the last phrase? It's rich too. Steadfastness of hope. In other words, again, if we can pull this phrase apart and translate it correctly as it's intended, is hope is producing steadfastness. Remember, we've seen this term before in our, in our preaching on the fruit of the Spirit. It means endurance. 
And we said, the classic distinction that we make between patience and endurance is this. I'm patient towards people. I endure in difficulty. But mark this out. Notice here, we're told this is characteristic of them. They are those who are steadfast. They are enduring. And we're going to see they are overwhelmed with difficulty and affliction in their life. But guess what? They're enduring. And why? Because of hope. Oh, we're going to get into this at some point in our exposition of this book. That one of the things that you have to understand about antiquity is it was a world with no hope. It was a world with no hope. Remember how the Apostle Paul characterized it in 1 Corinthians 15 as he says there's some people around within earshot of the congregation who are somehow or some way in some connection denying the bodily resurrection of Christ and therefore of believers. Remember what he said? He said, well, let's just eat, sleep, and drink, for tomorrow we die. There's nothing left. If there's no bodily resurrection from the dead, there's no reason to go to church. Watch NASCAR. You see, the hope is grounded in something. Not Hallmark card pleasantries. But the reality of the bodily resurrection of Christ. They were so gripped by the idea of a crucified and resurrected Savior who is returning again with the kingdom of God in all of its consummated glory that it changed the way they lived. That's amazing. That's somebody that has been gripped by the things they see, they profess. They've had a genuine experience of grace. And as you look to verse 4, you see why. Again, these are tremendous, wonderful words. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you. Two things here underscored, highlight to us. Not just they've had a genuine experience of grace, but the basis of it. Just think about the language here. Beloved. It's a perfect tense verb, which means it refers to an enduring and an ongoing state, an unending, immutable state. It's passive in form, meaning they are the recipients of love. They are the objects of love. And notice the agent by God. You see, what the Apostle proclaims about them is their life is what it is because of the love of the Heavenly Father. They've experienced grace because of the love of God. And that love is enduring. It will never end. It will never fail. It will never be exhausted. It will never falter. It will never change. It is a permanent possession. Look at the ground ground of it all. His choice of you. I don't love that translation at all. Because it's the same word 
that we get election from, the cloge, which speaks of election. You see, what Paul has done is, it's as if he's, he's unwound a, a ball of yarn to get to the inner core. He says, why do you have all this in your life? His election. His sovereign choice. His eternal determination to set His affections upon you. told you this letter of Thessalonians is a great it's a great book something for us to savor and think about because whatever he says to a true church then is what he says to you this morning as a true believer this is you you are beloved by God you are chosen he speaks then to the experience of grace and its confirmation authentication in their life All that prepares the way then for our third point this morning, which is the ongoing needs of the congregation. I I can see that our time has basically been frittered away at this point nearly. There's not a lot we can do to unfold this, and it would take a tremendous amount of time. Let me tell you, first of all, without going into any detail, number one, what did they need? Confirmation and faith, and that is going to pertain to how their faith has been attempted to be undermined by people who reject Christ. We'll come back to that. Just realize that's something that they needed and that's something this letter is about. Second of all, they needed encouragement. Remember, as we've already read here from chapter 3, verse 2, or or 3, that they were being disturbed, and Paul was so concerned that they were being so disturbed by their afflictions, they might just change their mind. So what does somebody like that need? But encouragement. And it's another one of those interesting features of this letter that it has the most unusual thanksgiving in all the New Testament. Because it's a three-part thanksgiving which stretches over the course of three consecutive chapters. As if the apostle wanted to heighten the sense of encouragement. By stating thanksgiving and then digressing, stating thanksgiving and then digressing, stating thanksgiving and then punctuating as he does in chapter 3. But what is that to say, people of God? That one of the reasons why this letter was written was for the encouragement of the saints. And the encouragement is not empty platitudes of you can do it or it's all going to work out everything will be okay you don't need to write a letter from the Holy Spirit for that far more profound than that it was encouragement and grace that was the encouragement the last thing this book about is instruction One last place to turn to, people of God. Chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. And just as you'd expect from reading Paul's letters, you can bet that if he wrote something to the church, after expounding the gospel, he did what? Explain his doctrine and ethics. So notice the pivot here. Finally then... Brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord. 
What is chapter 4 and 5 going to be about? Doctrine and ethics. He's going to expound doctrine, some of it about eschatology, some of it about government, and then there's going to be an extensive section in here on ethics. How do we behave as believers? And one of the interesting things about all of this is they were already doctrinally sound. And as you see from the testimony here of the text, they're fairly mature. Faith-generating works, love-producing labors, hope-generating steadfastness. In fact, you can look at verse 1, see for yourself that the apostle is saying, here's the first exhortation. Uh, He said that as you receive from us instruction as how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do, they're already doing it. As if Paul feels a need to do what? Do what a good preacher does from time to time. Repeat himself. Because one thing you learn after a long time of hearing sermons is you can't remember everything. And so sometimes it's good to hear it again. And so the apostle here, separated from this congregation, people whom he loves, who he knows life has been shaken up and well, overwhelmed with difficulty. He speaks a word to them to confirm them, to encourage them, and to teach them. At the outset of our message this morning, I pointed your attention to something which is peculiar about this book in terms of his description and address to the church. We said that what Paul did was interesting and unique as he identified them as the ecclesia in God. And we said the purpose of that was to highlight from the very introduction, from his very uh, beginning statements to them, to reinforce in them, they are indeed a true church, loved by God, raised up by grace, upheld by God's sovereignty. You are a true believing congregation. He wanted to cement that in their thinking. It's a true church. And to this true church, he wrote to address their ongoing needs. What does that tell us this morning, people of God? That the true church in every single generation has ongoing needs. We rejoice that we're in God. We rejoice that Jesus is our Savior. We rejoice in God's mercies and forgiveness of sins and pardoned by grace, eternally secure in Christ having been elected from the foundations of the earth. But guess what? We have ongoing needs. And that's why Paul wrote this. To address ongoing needs, confirmation, encouragement, instruction. What are we going to learn as we walk through this book? We're going to learn the same lessons that that congregation learned. Confirmation, encouragement and instruction. So what do we do? We take faith and we apply it to those sections where the Apostle Paul says, we need confirmation about the origins and the foundations of truth. And we ask God to prepare our hearts to receive the instruction that we will be firmly rooted in faith. That our faith will have a firm platform and basis 
We think about encouragement. We read all the positive and wonderful things the Apostle Paul says about them. We remind ourselves this morning that the only way you receive those things is by the grace of God and His sovereign determination as your Heavenly Father to shower you with mercy. And so what do you do? As you listen with an attentive ear and lay hold of those for your own encouragement so that as you go through your days of discouragement, trial, tribulation, sorrow, exhausting labor, disappointment, you'll have something. You'll have the encouragement of God's grace. Instruction. As we pour very carefully over these final chapters with their instructions and doctrine and ethics, what will we do? We'll ask God to make our hearts ready. That we'll be teachable. That He'll prepare the way before us with His illuminating grace so that we will be reinforced. And thus, great doctrines and ethical principles which are to guide the church in every generation so that we'll be established. That was the purpose of the ministry then. It's the purpose of the ministry through this letter to us, that we'll be established. People of God, as a church that bears the marks of a true church, may God give us hearts and minds which are ready to receive a wonderful message, confirmation, instruction, and encouragement. Father, we thank you for great old letters. Thank you for the inspiration of this letter. We rejoice in even the providential occasion for it because of the disruption of the life of a fledgling new young congregation which had so many needs based upon its life difficulties and circumstances. We can apply that to ourselves quite easily in our difficult world here we live in. Lord, we thank you for all that went into this letter. And we pray, Father, that as we examine it verse by verse, that it will invigorate us spiritually and give us an infectious love for Christ and his gospel and his church. As we pray in Jesus' name, amen.